going to be in chapter 5 as we hit the ground running. And I want to read this quote by Dallas Willard. I've been reading as we get started. Our aim under love is not to be loving to this or that person, but to be a person possessed by love as an overall character of life. This is powerful. Oh, thank you, Jim. Thank you. I'll let you get that going. Love is not what you choose to do. Love is not what you choose to do. It is what you choose to be. Did you hear that? Love is not, it's not just doing things. It's not doing loving things, although that's good. But love is more the core. It's who you are. It's part of your identity. It's not about, be, about coming to the unlovable and trying to love them. Rather, come to them as a loving person. Even God doesn't just love. He is love. It is his identity. I love that quote from Dallas Willard. And again, our, our kind of our, our base verse, John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now we're going to keep moving through. And here, this is where it gets critical to me. The title of the curriculum is free to love. And we have to ask the question, are you free so that you can love? You cannot love with the agape kind of love that we've talked about and we've identified, the God kind and quality of love. You cannot do that unless you're free. And I love what the scripture says that whom the sun sets free is what? Free. free indeed. But we have to be free. We have to lean into the freedom that Jesus paid for. So we're going to do some, some deep diving in this. This is powerful. I, I enjoyed my time studying this. Listen to this. How free are you to love? Our greatest calling as followers of Jesus is to be lovers. So we're going to keep moving. How free are you to love? Freedom and loving others go hand in hand. In this chapter, we'll take a closer look at the direct relationship between freedom and the ability to love. The thing that bothers pastors, that bothers those of us who carry spiritual government on our shoulders, is that we see so many people who absolutely love Jesus, but they're bound up. They love the Lord. They've walked with Jesus. They went to Sunday school. They sang in the choir. They grew up in church. They know all the hymns. They know hymn number 475 in the Broadman hymnal is victory in Jesus, and they know all, all nine verses. However, they find themselves struggling as though they're bound in, a, in, a, in, a, in one of those straitjackets. And it's, it's, the, it's the religious bondage that has been put on their lives. They came to Jesus by grace through faith, but they were told they have to live by works. Salvation is free, but, but, but the rest of your life is not. Where does it say that in the Scripture? And, I, and I'm, it's tragic. And that was a little bit of my story. I came to, to the Lord, and it was such a moment of explosive life for me. I came by grace through faith, and my idea of God was not predicated upon having a bad daddy or a mean coach or a mean teacher or a mean authority figure in my life. No, I, I saw God as a good father from the beginning. And I have to tell you, that, that alleviated a lot of struggle for me. But I'm also smart enough and have been around the block enough to know that if you had daddy wounds, father wounds, or mother wounds, sometimes that not sometimes, most of the time, that, get trans that gets transferred where we're saying God is a good father, but if you've never had a good father as a model, you don't even know how to relate to a good father. You know how to fear a father. You know how to be, you know how to be respectful and honoring and fear fearful, but you don't know how to actually play in his presence. 
because your father didn't laugh. Your father wasn't fun. Your fa- My dad was a joker. He was fun. He liked motorcycles and fast cars, and, and he took me along for the ride. And uh, One of my greatest memories was getting on the back of a Honda CB750 with full outfitted dress fairing and all this. This was back in the 70s, and riding from Lubbock, Texas on the back of that Honda all the way up to, uh, to uh, Wyoming up to the Grand Tetons, spending, staying in parks and sleeping bags or in a hotel. And, and uh, I mean, that was just the memories of that. I'll, I'll never fade. I had a good dad. I had a good father. So it was pretty easy for me to make that jump right into being a child of God and say, God's good. He is a good father. But also recognize many didn't have that model. and They didn't have that, that luxury. I'm very blessed in that. Now, he's not a, he wasn't a follower of Jesus, but he was a good dad to me. And he, he poured into my life when I needed him to pour into my life, and I'm thankful for that. So it's easy sometimes when we come into this to say, man, I have to work for this. My dad was stern. God must be stern. My picture of God may be of, of, a, of an ogre sitting on a throne just waiting for you to make a mistake, just waiting for you to mess up. I have to tell you, I love you so much. I have to tell you the truth. I have to speak the truth in love. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of the New Testament. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So God and Jesus look a lot alike, and they act a lot alike. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. How did Jesus handle people that were broken? He loved them. He healed them. He had compassion. He was the only one who had a right to pick up a stone, and he didn't. He didn't. And everybody else wanted to pick up a stone and, and kill that poor girl that was caught in adultery. I keep always wonder, where's the dude, you know? Why is she the one brought in? Where's the guy? Why isn't he taking responsibility for his actions, right? So they brought her before him, and the only one that had a right to pick up a stone didn't. He just said, go and sin no more. Sins are forgiven. So if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. That's, that's how a lot of people can make that jump from, okay, my, my father wasn't a good example, but I do, I do trust Jesus. I trust the way he handled people. I see the way he... only people he got upset with were the religious folk that were trying to put a yoke of bondage onto the new believers, onto all those who were following Jesus. That's who he got frustrated with. That's who he, he was stern with and strong with. But to those who were the broken, the lame, the forgotten, the passed over, the ones that didn't really matter in society, the overlooked, he had nothing but compassion for them. And he reached out to them in love. So if you're if your view of God is a mad ogre sitting on a throne just waiting for you to mess up and with a big ruler in his hand ready to wrap your knuckles, try moving that picture aside and saying, all right, Jesus I can connect with and relate to. Well, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And so relate to him that way. So this freedom piece, we've got to be so free because if we're not free, we can't love. And we'll show you how that works in just a minute. So freedom and loving others go hand in hand. So next one, freedom and loving others go... Oh, I think I just doubled up that one. Listen to this. In Galatians 5.1, Galatians 5.1 says this. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Man, I love that passage. Freedom that Christ has set us free. And by the way, 
and, and I'll, I'll say this. He says, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. He was actually, don't let yourself return back to the law, the, the life of rules. Because that's what he was referring to as the old covenant law. And he was talking to people who had come out of Judaism. And he was saying, do not go back and return to bondage when you've been set free from that. You're not, you're not under law anymore. You are now under grace. And he says, so it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm. Don't go back. Stand firm in your freedom. And you know what one of the toughest things to do? It's not always the devil whispering in our ear that tries to take our freedom from us. It's other followers of Christ who don't know freedom and who have a hard time with you enjoying yours. Is that not the truth? People struggle when you're joyful and when you're alive and when you can stand in the face of difficulty and say, God is good and hallelujah anyway. And people that are in bondage and aren't free and under that law and carry that works mentality, they struggle with your freedom. But let me tell you something. We serve and we, we're here to please an audience of one. Amen? We're here for his glory, his honor, for him. And so I want to be a blessing to my father. And that means if my father's good and loving and open, that means I can play in his presence. I can dance. You don't want to see that. But I can dance. If I wanted to, I could. I don't even want to see me dance. I can play my guitar in his presence. And I do. I love worshiping him. And I can laugh and I can enjoy him in my presence. There are times when I'm driving in. I've got about a 16, 17-minute drive in from where we live. Just an easy, nice drive down 87. It's beautiful. Love that drive. And, and there are times when I find myself laughing out loud as I'm talking to the Lord. I'm just having fun with him. And you know what? He's laughing with me. He's not, he's not waiting to, to careen me off the road just to show me and teach me a lesson. He loves me. And I love and I stand in freedom. And I enjoy the freedom that I have in Christ. And that means I have to guard that no person comes along and tries to take that away from me. Amen? He says, stand. Stand firm in it. Now listen to this. Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be what? Help me, somebody. Free. Free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, through love, serve one another. See, he gets that caveat there. He's like, look, that, your freedom isn't just so you go do what you want, become a hedonist. Your freedom is so that you can with joy and with life and with grace and with mercy and with, with pleasure serve others. Lift others, encourage others. That's what your freedom is for. So your freedom is not just for you. It's for the benefit of all. Does that make sense? So here we go. How free are we in Christ? Since Christ is our freedom and we contain the fullness of Christ, that's Colossians 2, we are totally free. Someone say totally. totally. Feel the gravity of that word. You are totally free. Whom the Son sets free. This is uh, John eight thirty six. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. Free indeed if He set you free. Have you been set free? Amen. Do you, how, many of, how many of you are like me? You still have to remind yourself that I'm free. You have to remind yourself from time to time? It's okay to remind yourself that in Christ I am. And I, I want to encourage you. I don't have these. Bill's bringing me 300 more. We've given out over 1,000 of these things. Bill's bringing 300 more by tomorrow, so we'll have them for Sunday. But these simple little bookmarks that have in Christ statements based on the Scripture. 
There is power in our words. So when you speak the word of God over your life, it aligns your thinking to his word and his will and his ways. And so I, on an ongoing basis, I keep this handy. And, I, and I'll just, if I'm having a bum day, I'll just say, Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that I'm complete in Christ. I thank you, Lord, that I'm secure. I thank you, Lord, that I'm a saint. I thank you, Lord, that I'm joyful, peaceful, patient. That's fruit of the Spirit. Lord, I thank you that I'm a son. I'm a son. So take, the, take God's word and stand in your freedom. Do not let the enemy rip you off. We're totally free in Christ. Freedom is not something we're working towards. It is something we are working from. Do you hear that? We're not working for freedom. We're already free. He said on the cross this beautiful Greek expression, to telestai. And it literally means it is finished, paid in full. Done. So he's already paid for your freedom. The problem is, is we don't always access what the truth is. So we have to remind ourselves on an ongoing basis. I do that through speaking, speaking the word. So a lot of times when I'm driving in, I'll just, I don't know if you were here on Sunday morning in the 1045 service, but I just took off on a litany of scripture just that I do from memory. I'm the head, not the tail. I'm blessed coming in, blessed going out. I'm above only and not beneath. As the enemy approaches me one way, I just went off on this litany, both Old Testament, New Testament, scriptures that declare who I am in Christ, that no weapon formed against me shall prosper, but every tongue that rises against me, you, Father, shall show to be in the wrong. What are those? Those are statements. They're scriptures that you take and then you take it out like the, remember what the Bible in the armor of God, Ephesians 6, which we're going to get to in a few weeks? In our series on Sunday, it is the sword of the Spirit. It is an offensive weapon. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, and it is a weapon of offense, not defense. So when I talk, I have a shield of faith, but I have a sword of the Spirit. And we got to learn, we know the Word works, but we have to learn to work the Word. Amen? You know, you don't hand a sword to a, to a young person training to be a gladiator and expect him to go out there and whoop somebody. I mean, it's life or death. You don't get a second chance in, in, the, in the arena. You have to train. They had to train a gladiator. Anybody ever see Gladiator? Russell Crowe, great movie, awesome movie, awesome dude movie. And uh, testosterone on, you know, a thousand times. But I love that movie. But the idea that they had to train and train and train and train and train because once you got out of the arena, it was life or death. And so you don't just go out there and go, well, I have a Bible, but I never read it, and so I really don't know what it says. But here's the beauty. If you're just starting to step into this arena, then you have some help in a little simple tool like this. Take the Word of God and begin to speak it forth and declare it over your life. That's what standing is about. Freedom's not something we're working towards. It's something we're working from. And I like to say it this way as well. This is something I've said for years. We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. Did you hear that? That deserved an amen or something. That's good preaching, Jimmy. Good job. We're not fighting from victory or from for victory. We're fighting from the posture of victory. We already win. Amen? amen. All right. How free are we in Christ? Here it is. The problem is a few of us feel like we are completely free. There it is. We, we say it, and in theory, we know it to be true, but we, it hasn't dropped for us. We don't know it in our knower. So even though I, I might declare I'm free, I don't really feel free. And so we need to deal with that. So here we go. This is true for three primary reasons. We don't believe we're totally free. 
Some people just don't believe it. Like, well, I know the Bible says it, but you know, the Bible, you can't always take what it says, literally. Really? Let me tell you something. The Word works. The Word of God works. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it literally pierces even down into the marrow. So we don't believe we're totally free. Number two, we've walked long enough in appropriate... We've, we've walked long enough... We haven't walked long enough in appropriating, my, my typo, Christ's freedom to experience his freedom. So there's, there's a time, there's growth. You're on a journey here, and if we haven't walked very long in doing... So appropriating, what does it look like to appropriate uh, this freedom? It looks like taking something like this or taking a chapter of the Bible, Deuteronomy 28, first 14 verses is a good place to start, or taking Ephesians chapter 2 and reading through and personalizing it for yourself. I've been raised up together, seated in Christ in heavenly places. And then you can go over to chapter 1 and go, where's Christ seated? At the right hand of the Father. So I'm seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father. Lord, I thank you that you've seated me far above all principality, power, might, and dominion. What am I doing? I'm personalizing the Scripture and putting myself into the Scripture and now praying the Scripture. That's appropriating freedom, appropriating truth. It is for freedom that Christ has set Jimmy Pruitt free. I am free in Christ. Whom the Son sets free, that would be me. Whom Jimmy sets free, whom the Son sets free. I don't even know how to word that right. The Lord has set me free because I'm in Christ, and I am free indeed because of what Jesus did for me. You just personalize it. Personalize it. If you stumble over it like I do, just laugh. You can't break this thing. That's what's beautiful about living life as a lab class. You can't break it. It's an ongoing experiment. We're learning. We're growing. Take some chances. Look at me, folks. Take some risks. Take a chance. Take your Bible and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to personalize Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 for me. Man, that is a prayer from Paul that is powerful. I'm going to take Ephesians chapter 1, 15 and following. That's another prayer of Paul that's powerful. Lean into it. Take John chapter 17. That's Jesus' prayer for the disciples and us and personalize that. Put yourself in there. Take a chance. Get it on your mouth. Get it out loud and read the Scripture. Pray the Scripture over your life. I'm telling you what it'll do is it'll shift the atmosphere. If anything, it'll shift your mindset. In fact, on Sunday, I had several people come to me afterward, and they're like, "Woo, doggy, what, what happened to you? I, I had one guy literally come up to me, and he said, he said, he was a trial lawyer, Jerry, Jerry Fisher, who's usually here on Wednesday night. He was a trial lawyer in Houston for many years. I mean, he's, he's been there, done that, and been in big, big stuff. Don't let his good old country boy demeanor fool you. That dude is brilliant. I can say it about him because he's not here tonight. And I uh, wouldn't tell him to his face. I want to get a big head. But, uh, but Jerry came up to me. He said, I've seen hundreds of summaries and closing statements, closing arguments. And he said, he, I love when he goes into trial mode for me. He said, I just feel like I'm a kid in a candy store. He goes, he said, when a, what a trial lawyer does when they do their close is they take all the evidence that's been presented and they wrap it up into a summary statement. And then they release it in one final push. And your goal is to be convincing that the evidence shows this. He said, what you did when you went off on the Scripture, he said, that was a summary statement. And he said, frankly, it was the best one I've ever heard in my entire life. So I walked out of here feeling pretty good. But here's the bottom line. What I didn't tell Jerry was this. I said, Jerry, I do that every... I didn't say it, but I'm like, I do that every day. 
For me to live is Christ, to die is gain, but to live is Christ. That means if I'm going to live from the posture of victory, then I've got to, I've got to fight every day. And, and if you guys think that somehow a pastor gets it easier than you do, <laughs> oh, let me bust your bubble real quick. I'm just going to be a myth buster right here. It's not true. I get it the same way you do. I don't get a pass on anything. If anything, the test sometimes can be harder because the Lord tests his work, and there's a high responsibility for those who lead. And I'm like, Lord, you've called me to this, so I welcome whatever you bring. But let me tell you something. I don't get it any different than you do. And so I, I can't afford to not have the word of God on me, in me, through me, and speaking and declaring and fighting. I can't. I don't know how y'all do it. I can't live without it. And so when Jerry was like, I've never heard anything like that, I'm like, Jerry, I do that every day. I've done it every day for years. Because we've had to fight for our family. We've had to fight the good fight of faith. So listen to this. We haven't walked long enough to appropriate it. That's appropriating it. That's getting the word on your mouth. Number three, we choose not to walk in the freedom we believe we have in Christ. Some people just would rather keep their bondage. Do you know it's fascinating to me, and this goes back to sociology, psychology, human dynamics, group dynamics. There are some people that you can stand there and you can show them the truth of the Scripture. I mean, you can show it in any translation. You can say, look, let me tell you what the Greek says. The Koine Greek bears witness of this. And there are people that will look you in the face and say, I still don't believe it. And you're sitting there going, wait, Koine Greek, Aramaic even. The word, the word bears witness of the word. It's not the only place. It's, it's in here. Context is king. Let me give you the whole framework and the story behind it. I still don't believe it. Many are lost. Huh? Many are lost. Yeah, yeah. It's scary. And, it, and I, this happens all the time. And so just because you hear truth, there are some people who would rather hang on to the, to the bondage they're in or some feel like they can't. They bought the lie from the enemy that they can't get over it, that things will never get better than they are. It's called fatalism. They fall into a fatalistic mentality. Fatalism is, is that mentality that um, maybe if you've ever... Remember Harlem was a big thing. It was always in the news back in the day. Harlem, and, and it was always like... We would think thoughts like this. Why don't people just move out of Harlem? Why don't they just go? If it's so bad, why don't they just leave as though they can but what we don't realize is fatalism is a trap and it's a mental bondage. They can't leave. In their mind, they cannot go. There are no other options. That's the best it's ever going to get. Fatalism, and a lot of Christians live in fatalism where they think this is the best it's ever going to be. I'll just keep going to church. I'll just, I'll just keep showing up, but this is the best as it's going to get. And that, my friends, is a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie. In John chapter 8, the Bible says that the devil is, the lie, is a lie. He was a murderer. This is what the Scripture says. Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning, a liar, and the father of it. And then it goes on to say that it's in his nature to lie. That's all he can do. And so the devil delights in taking our little cracks that we give him in our armor and leveraging our pain, leveraging our trauma, leveraging our experiences to say, See, I told you that wasn't going to work. See, I told you it would never get better. 
You ever felt that? The thing about the devil that's so smart is that he sounds a lot like your own voice. And you think it's you thinking that. And let me tell you, the enemy is smart. Have you ever read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis? If you haven't, you need to reread that book. I remember them interviewing, I heard an interview that was said of, of C.S. Lewis. It might have actually been in the, begin, in the front of the book that I had. There's so many editions of that that have come out. But he was asked in an interview how he was able to get into the mind of the devil. How in the world? It, I mean, the stuff you wrote about was so dark and frightening. You know what he said? He said, I had only to look in the mirror. <laughs> yeah, that's honest, isn't it? So, choose, choice. Here, let's keep moving. These three reasons not only negatively impact our experiential freedom in general, but they impede our willingness and our ability to love. Remember, freedom and love, they work hand in hand. So if you're not free, you can't love freely. You've got to be free to love freely. So here it is again. Your willingness and ability to love are directly proportional to your experiential freedom in Christ. If you're not free and it hasn't dropped for you yet, and you don't know that you can laugh in the presence of God and enjoy Him, enjoy Him, and enjoy what He's given to us, enjoy our inheritance, enjoy your salvation, enjoy your free. If you don't know that and you don't get that, you're going to have a very difficult time freely loving others. And, and we'll talk about why I love, I love what Bill says here in a minute. We'll go there in a second. It stands to reason that the greater the freedom you're experiencing, the greater is your capacity to love. Isn't that an amen? Absolutely. When you are free, there's joy in his presence is fullness of joy, the scripture says. And so when we are full of joy and we're in his presence and we're living life out of the saucer, not out of the cup, we're living life out of the overflow of who he is, then you can't help but be joyful. You got a full cup and you're living life out of the overflow, out of the saucer, not the cup. And when you're doing that, you have a greater capacity to love others and engage others, and have compassion for others, and go beyond and love people unconditionally with this agape love. Here's another one. This is in your book. You have to be free from whatever is blocking your ability to love in order to be free to love God, love others, and here's the big one that we struggle with, love ourselves. Love ourselves. We struggle with that one because we know ourselves. And we're so afraid that if everyone else knows what we know about ourselves, that no one would ever talk to us again. We'll be rejected and abandoned. Do you know that's one of the greatest lies on the planet? And that's why we hide. That's why we cover. It's exactly the reason Adam ran and hid himself in the garden. And God had to say, Adam, where are you? As if he didn't know. But he called out because he was giving Adam an opportunity to own up, to own the situation. Where are you? We were afraid. I mean, that, that whole dialogue and exchange is, is a study in human behavior, and uh, it's fascinating. But to love God, love self, we have to be free from whatever is blocking. So whatever is blocking your ability to love in order to be free to love God and others and yourself, we've got to be free. So here's, here's some things here. As you know, plaque, this is, this is interesting, your spiritual artery, 
Now, I don't know if any of you have ever had a plaque build up in your arteries, but uh, my granddad did, and it finally took his life. But he struggled with that in his older years. As you know, plaque can build up in an artery and prevent blood from fully flowing. It's blockage. Happens over time. If the plaque is not, my typo, is not dealt with, over time it can kill you. Similar to a physical artery, we can have plaque in our spiritual artery as well. This is called solical. The word solical is coming off of the word soul, and that means the, the soul is the sum total of who you are. It's your flesh, it's your mind, it's your will, it's your emotions. Uh, it's the seed of your emotions. So solical is your flesh, and we can have solical flat plaque where our flesh continues to impede the flow of God in our lives. So picture an artery running into the heart and it being caked with plaque. But in a spiritual sense, using that as a metaphor and illustration, think in terms of the kinds of things that create blockage for a full blood flow. Uh, I've, I haven't had this happen, but I've, I've been around long enough to talk with people who've had heart bypass surgery and who came out of it feeling better than they'd felt in years because for the first time they had full blood flow again. And they were like, I didn't realize how bad I felt until I, was, until I had full flow again. So, so a lot of us, have, our flow has been impeded. The flow of the Spirit of God, the flow of love, the flow of life has been impeded. And we don't even know we have blockage, spiritual blockage, spiritual plaque. I love the way he worded that, solical plaque. So here are four key elements that make up your solical plaque. This is what causes blockage. Very insightful here. Number one, false beliefs. And what we'll unpack each of these in short form. Number two, unbelief. Different than false beliefs. Unbelief. Number three, past woundedness. Oh boy, that's a big one right there. And number four, the self-life, the flesh. That's us, me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity, right? Our solical plaque not only blocks us from loving others, it also prevents us from receiving God's love because the flow is impeded both ways. So if you can't receive God's love, because remember what I, I've mentioned this on Sunday, we want to be not a reservoir but a river, right, through which God flows. Let that river flow through us. But a, a, a reservoir just contains and then when it can only contain so much. It only has so much capacity, whereby a river will always constantly be flowing. And so we want to be a river, not a reservoir. So here it is. We've got to be in the place where we can receive so we can dispense. Remember what, what Ian Thomas's great quote is. God gave his life for you so he could, or Jesus gave his life for you so he could live his life, give his life to you so he could live his life through you, right? Flowing like a river, not a reservoir, a river. So let's look at it, unpack a couple of these. Number one is false beliefs. Examples of false beliefs concerning God's love. Here it is. God loves me, but his love is conditional. God only loves me when I behave. Do you know there are parents who've told their children that? You know, Johnny, God's watching you. Can you imagine what that does to a child's psyche? First of all, it's scary. That's just frightening. That's abusive. I'm sorry if you've done that, but I'm just saying that, that, is, that is not... I can't even imagine how God feels when we use him that way to leverage behavior, to get something... Our, it's unbelievable. 
God loves me, but his love is conditional. In other words, he'll only love me if I act right. He'll only love me if I do right. He'll only love me if I read the Bible more, pray more, give more, work harder. People kill themselves, wear themselves out trying to get God's favor. And here's the sad part. They already have God's favor. Did you know that? If you're in Christ, you're already his favorite. You're not a Hittite, you're not an Amorite, you're not a Perizzite, you're not an Amalekite, you're a favorite. You're one of God's favorites. You already have the favor of God. In fact, Psalm 30 verse 5 says his favor is for life. His favor is for life, and that means the God kind of life, the God quality, quality and quantity. His favor, you already have his favor. So what you're working so hard to try to earn, you already have. God loves him because his love's conditional. Here, that's a false belief. Here's another one. My sin outweighs God's love for me. Isn't that funny how we measure our own sin? And then we tell God how he should measure it. Oh, there's no way God could ever forgive me for that. I've had people tell me that. And they were convinced in their mind because it was a belief. It was a false belief that what they had done is so heinous, God could never forgive them. I'm like, well, what about the Apostle Paul who stoned Peter to death and drug people off to prison and Killed people right and left. And he became one of the great leaders in the early church. One of the great missionaries where we see all of his journeys through the book of Acts and his exploits. And he healed people and brought people to Christ. And God used him. He planted churches all over Asia, which now is modern-day Turkey. And, and, and all the letters that we read, half of, the, half of the New Testament, he wrote and authored. And yet he was a murderer. He was a killer. He was a God-hater. He was a, not a God-hater. He was a Jesus-hater. He was a God-lover, but a Jesus-hater. And he even calls himself the chief of sinners. I was number one. Oh, but God. Amen? God knocked him off his high horse on the road to Damascus, didn't he? Took him out, and boy, it changed his life forever. Trajectory was changed. So your sin does not outweigh God's love for me. I think, how big is God? I always think of Australia. He created Australia. He's pretty big. Amen? God's huge. He created Texas. Amen? He's big. You think your sin outweighs God's ability to love? Come on, really? You think that is God? You're God that small? <laughs> Here's another one. Here's another false belief. If, again, my typos. I was going fast today. If I would only do more for God, then he would love me. Oh, man. Oh, man. Here's the deal. I'm not telling everybody to quit what they're doing in the church. We'd have an awful Sunday next week. Everybody just decided, oh, okay, pastor, I, I'm going to take you at your word. I'm done. But here's the deal. I don't want you working unless you're doing it for the right reason. I don't want you serving unless you're doing it because it's out of joy. It's out of the saucer. If you're serving to try to earn brownie points from God, stop. Russ is going, no, don't say that. No, I'm saying it. You shouldn't be doing that if that's what you're doing. You should be serving because you're in love with him. You should be giving your resources, your finances. If you're a tither, tithes, generosity, generosity, whatever it is, your view on that, you should be doing it out of the overflow of your love and your life and your gratitude, not out of some duty that you're afraid you're going to be cursed with a curse. Malachi, or Malachi if you're Italian, Malachi 3.8, oh, you're robbing God. You're cursed with a curse. <laughs> I'm not even going to decimate that right now. We'll do that another time. But, but it, if you're not giving from here, 
Here's a short form of that. We get hung up on 10%, right? That's old covenant. But if we're following Jesus, guess how much it is? 100%. (laughs) So you want to go old covenant? Go 10%? You will go all in with Jesus. Say, Jesus, everything I have is yours. You tell me what to give. You tell me what to give. But if all you can do is 3%, don't you dare beat yourself up and think you're cursed with a curse. Because here's what happens. This is the fallacy, and this is how the enemy decimates the resources of any given church. Not just this one, any church. He takes this young couple who are barely surviving, barely making it, and all they've been taught is tithing. Tithing, tithing. If you don't tithe, you're cursed. If you don't tithe, you're cursed. So here's what they do. They can only do 3%. So guess what? I'm cursed anyway, so I'm not going to give anything. Because they think their little bit doesn't matter. And yet God says, oh, that widow's might, that little widow's might that she gave, that's one of the greatest gifts ever. That little bit. Every little bit matters. And if you have fallen under that lie, that is a lie from the pit of hell to get you not to do anything to not contribute, to not, not be involved at all. And then you just feel guilty every time we have the offering time because you don't have anything to give. That is a lie from the, the enemy has done a number on the church today. And their church is laboring under that because they are try, can't, try, they're trying to mix law and grace and make it work. It doesn't work. We're in a dispensation of grace So if you can do 2%, 1%, $10, it doesn't matter. You give what you can and what God, but not under compulsion. Amen? Does that make sense? There's a short version of that. I'm going to unpack that big time for us because we need need people to be set free to celebrate what God puts on their heart, what they can do, as opposed to fighting this this 10% war. And those of us who can and and should have left 10% a long time ago. That's, I don't even use a calculator. He don't need a calculator now. I'll never be good enough for God to love me. Boy, that is a lie. That's a false belief. And that, that's strong in people. I'm never going to be good enough. Well, here's the truth. You're right. You're not. But the beauty of it is that he's good enough, and he's the one living his life through you. He makes you the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He's made you to be holy, blameless, and above reproach. That means unaccusable. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Should I go on? This is the truth of God's Word. You're acceptable because He made you acceptable, not because your behavior is acceptable. Amen? He made you significant, not because you're amazing and good, but because He loves you and He gave His life to you. So he's living his life through you. What do we do? Enjoy it. Rest in it. Be grateful for it. And quit wearing yourself out. Do the next thing Jesus tells you to do. But don't do anything else. Do what he tells you to do. That that freed me up years ago. Because as a pastor, you can imagine a church of 450 people. There's a few demands put on me sometimes. And everybody thinks theirs is number one. I'm just saying Theirs is the most important. Well, get in line. You're in line with about 35 other folks whose theirs is the most important. And I learned a golden word. It's only two letters, and it's amazing. It's the word no. And that's a full <laughs> Praise the Lord. Because I'm not the Messiah. I'm nobody's answer man. Jesus is the head of the church, not Jimmy Pruitt. Amen? So we'll do the next thing Jesus tells us to do. I moved to a new church one time, and I had 
two very wealthy people take me out to lunch. I figured out real quick these were bullies. And I was the new kid on the block, the new pastor. And we sat down to eat lunch, and they pulled out their list. And they said, these are the things we want to see done in the church. You know what I said to them? I went old school, West Texas. I said, boys, we're going to do the next thing Jesus tells us to do. And if it's on that list, great. But if it's not, doesn't matter. And then they made me pay for lunch. <laughs> True bullies. They didn't last long. And that was, that was fine. Pruning. Unbelief. Here, we'll go quickly through these. Here's here, examples of unbelief because I don't feel his love. I don't believe God loves me because I don't feel his love. We walk by faith and not by what? Sight, not by what we feel. We're not moved by what we feel. We're not moved by what we think. We're only moved by the truth and what we know to be true. We're moved by what we believe. And I stand on God's word. So I'm not going to be moved by my emotions because my emotions can be all over the map. My emotions today are in the tank right now because a precious 18-year-old took their life and the missionaries' families devastated. And so my emotions are not here. But it doesn't matter because I'm not moved by that. I'm moved by what I believe, what I know God's called me to do. I could have handed this off tonight, but why would I do that? I'm not moved by what I feel. I'm moved by what I believe. But I also don't deny what I feel. Because what you feel is what you feel. Amen? But it's how you respond to what you feel when you're trying to be mature in Christ and seeking to walk in maturity. You say, you know what? There's something that needs to be done. I'm going to get it done. It's going to happen. And praise God for it. And God will anoint it and touch it and do whatever he needs to do. And then I'll go home and cry. But right now, I'm not moved by what I feel. I'm energized, actually. This is joyful. So I don't, I, I don't believe God loves me because I don't feel his love. Here's another one. I don't believe God loves me because he let my loved one die. Yeah. Ten days, three people close to me have passed. All three believers, all three too young. And that's, that's the shocker. But I believe God loves me. Here's the thing. They beat me to the punch. They're already with Jesus. They're dancing on the streets of God. Man, whatever that is, whatever the renewal of all things looks like for them, they're already there. My mom beat me to the punch. She was 45 when she passed. And you just have to go, wow, wow. Can't wait to see you again. It's going to be amazing at the renewal of all things. New heavens, new earth, new bodies, hallelujah. Anybody got an amen for a new body? Anybody ready to trade theirs in? I'm telling you, it's going to be beautiful. Here's another one. I don't believe God loves me because he isn't meeting my expectations. Well, somebody call the wambulance, okay? Good night. Really? Really? Most entitled world? Oh, my gosh. So I'm just going to move right on. All right. I don't believe God loves me because I feel unworthy to receive his love. So many. So many feel that. The problem is it's not true. You're so worthy Jesus died for you. That's how worthy you are. God gave his best for you. That's how worthy you are. Amen? Amen. All right, a couple more. Woundedness. Here's another one. Here's examples. If God loves me, why did he allow me to be abused? Oh, man, that's hard. That's tough. That's tough. Here's another one. I, I, I don't really have time to unpack that, but I'm telling you, I have... Let me just say this. You, know, you talk about Q&A, I, I say Q&R. Question and response, not Q and answer, but question and answer, Q and R, question and response. We have to respond to these things. If God loves me, why doesn't he stop the pain? 
one of my best friends who I walked with for many years ended up having a severe back injury. He was a coach and an athlete, and I used to see him at the gym all the time. We'd wave at each other, and we'd lifting weights and see, seeing each other across the gym. And, and then one day he came hobbling in. He blew out his back. And then he had a surgery that went south. And this man went from being one of the most fun, exciting brothers. He was one of my elders in my church. I had set him in as an elder, and I saw him. It tanked his whole life. And uh, it, was, it was brutal to watch. And uh, the pain didn't stop. And it took him down and took him out. And I was able to see him at a funeral a week and a half ago and go hug his neck and reconcile with him and love him. And it was a beautiful, beautiful moment. When we get to walk in the ministry of reconciliation, it's powerful, powerful. And uh, that was restored. It was beautiful. If my parents didn't love me, how could God love me? I mean, I was a caseworker with 25, 26 kids on my caseload at Buckner Children's Home in Lubbock. And every one of those children had been physically, sexually, verbally abused. And I had to read their case files and get familiar with every one of them. And it, it was unreal, the pain and the devastation and how these children had been so abused by their own families, relatives. And, and I had to live in that world. And I had to reconcile my own faith and faith for them as I brought Jesus to them. And uh, it was tough. And I saw miracles happen. They may not have been epic, legs growing back kind of miracles, but I saw miracles of restoration and God healing. Uh, I'd love to say every one of them turned out that way, but they didn't. And uh, the good part about social media is that I'm able to stay in touch with a whole lot of those, I say kids, they're not kids anymore. This was 30 years ago. And uh, some of them have blossomed into fully functional, amazing adults because Jesus, it took, and it's beautiful to watch. Last thing, we'll land with this. It's time to go. This is the last one, the flesh, so there's not points here. We, acting out of our flesh, cannot love unconditionally because our flesh is always self-absorbed, self-focused, and self-serving. Notice the common word there, self. Me, me, me. Me, me, me. You know, the first time, this is a human nature, so psychological, therapeutic thing, but you know the first thought that all of us have when we get bad news? The first thought is, what about me? What does this mean for me? This means we won't go on vacation with them next year. Uh, this means I won't see them again. This means that, oh no, you know, I mean, it, it would be amazing if our first thought was, oh no, so sorry for them. But we default to this self thing. And I'm aware of it enough that I see it when it happens. I go, ah! And I've had enough bad news lately to go, oh, okay, all right, fight through that, throw that off. I mean, I'll go back into defensive cornerback mode, chuck them off, and just, I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to receive that. All our attempts to love others from our flesh are contaminated by our expectations, conditions, unforgiveness, self-protection, that's huge, and fleshly rights, our entitlement. Amen? Does that make sense? We're contaminated. 
So the thing is, is we want to be free so that we're free to love. And I gave you a lot of hopefully how-tos that are helping you. I'm trying to do that on Sunday. I don't want to just give you the wow. We need to talk about the how so that we have practical tools for continuing to break through these barriers, this plaque, this solical plaque that we labor under. Amen? All right, let's all stand together. Let's pray. Father, in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray for my friends here. Lord, wow, there's a lot of information tonight, a lot of stuff, a lot of heavy stuff here. Would you give us grace to process this, what we've heard, what we've experienced tonight, and give us grace to bring application into this place so that we can begin to flush out and break away the solical plaque that builds up and that begins to stop the flow. It stops the flow of love both into us and out of us. So, Father, would you give us grace, wisdom, and even the how-to, the strategic piece of this, of how to break that plaque loose. And so I pray for my friends, Lord, even right now, Father, would you begin to chip away at that plaque by your grace, by your love. Give us wisdom in how to learn to pray the scriptures over our lives and begin to work the word, knowing that the word works, but learning how to actually appropriate it for our own lives. Father, would you teach us how to take Bible passages and pray them and personalize them so that we're actually praying your will, praying your ways, praying your heart, aligning our mind with yours, our heart with yours, so that we can gain momentum for breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough. And so, Father, thank you for the truth that we're not fighting for victory, we're fighting from victory. We're not clawing trying to get love, we're fighting from it. So thank you for the truth that sets us free. We honor you in it. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen and amen. Thank you. God bless you. Great to have you all tonight.